0: Hi, everybody. This is Adam again, doing part two of my series on fiends. I've snuck back into Dan's house in the middle of the night. Uh, Last night was a raging success. I ended up uh, going up after the last episode to draw a mustache on his face, like I said I was going to. Turns out he already has a mustache. Uh, So I just ended up signing his forehead with a great big sign that said Terry was here. And hopefully that'll sow a little bit of discord and, and he won't realize that it's been me doing this. Although to be frank, I am going to be releasing these online. That is future Adam's problem. Anyway, today we're talking about demons. So we're back. The very first thing that I want to talk about really quick is uh, the fact that they're very, very different from devils. Demons and devils are two radically different things. Devils are lawful evil, and demons are chaotic evil. Now, what does chaotic evil mean? Does it just mean that they're the Tasmanian devil, or does it mean that they're Joker? Or does it mean that they're Bane looking to sow chaos? There are so many different ways to look at what chaotic and chaos actually means in Dungeons and Dragons, but I think the number one thing that we can focus on for demons is that what they want to do is create anarchy, destruction, and corruption. These are the three big things. Anarchy, destruction, and corruption. So there are uh, a lot of different kinds of demons, and believe me when I say A lot. There are about one and a half times the amount of demons as there are devils. So uh, we have quite a list to get through today, but just really quickly, the big difference between demons and devils, um, besides the fact that they're lawful versus uh, chaotic, is the fact that devils, uh, they get to rise through the ranks by getting promotions up through their armies and through their legions by the arch devils that run them. They get rewarded For doing great deeds and for supporting their masters. However, it doesn't quite work that way for demons. Demons are actually just spawned straight from the Abyss. The Abyss creates them and they are an extension of the Abyss. It spontaneously forms these things and and they're filthy and they're disgusting and they're usually full of rage looking to destroy whatever they can. Now, they can get promotions from within. That is an option, but it happens very rarely, and it's incredibly painful. When a greater demon sees that a lesser demon is doing something that it likes, it can say, you know what, I'm going to give you more power. He's going to reach down. He's going to use the abyssal magic that he has, the demonic forces within him, and he's going to twist and shape and promote one of these other demons. Now, there are a few special demons that we're going to save to the end. You guys, uh, heard the last episode where the Abishai were saved to the end. We've got a few unique cases that are saved to the end as well. Not every single one of the demons, uh, the demon types can actually be promoted up into. There are quite a few unique ones. We can thank, uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters to, um, for uh, for putting all this together and giving us a whole bunch of different flavor um but remember the demons they're here to sow chaos they're always looking for a way into the uh, prime material planes they're always looking for uh a way to destroy and see distrust in mortals and they're wherever they go you can tell because there are signs of corruption absolutely everywhere that follow them plants are dying water is becoming foul the air begins to stink things rot consistently and fall apart the sight of a demon infestation is it 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 never actually ends up um returning to its original form it is consistently and always fouled they are eternally evil and what they end up touching and corrupting Remains evil forever as well. They're so eternally evil that you can't actually kill them on the primaterial plane. If you are lucky enough to knock them back and to wipe them out and to kill them, they just sink down into this black, uh, ichor, this disgusting tar like substance. But then they materialize back in the abyss with all of their memories and all of their abilities, and they will then start looking for a way back. It's not enough to kill the demon. You have to keep them from getting back. And the only way to truly kill them is to kill them in the Abyss. You have to travel to their home realm. And there are an infinite number of layers to the Abyss. There are nine hells, but the Abyss is huge. It's, it's infinite. It's beyond scope. And so trying to find these demons and hunting them down is a feat unto itself something that can span entire campaigns. And even then, when you get into the abyss and you kill the demon there, if they have trapped their soul inside a special amulet made with with demonic metals, then they themselves will be able to choose when and where they come back and are respawned again. It is so damn difficult, pardon the pun, to get rid of these demons And that's why they hold so much power. And a lot of mortals look to the demons to get their power. That's why there are so many demonic cults. There are so many different... Even evil creatures, mortal creatures, uh, who have their own gods, will turn to the abyss and to demonic power and, and try to pull up the power of the demons. But they know, even the most evil creatures, know that if there is a portal that opens and demons start pouring in. The world is doomed. Entire wars have been put on pause to be able to stop demonic influence uh, or to close a portal uh, that was opened from the abyss. So you can use these amulets. Actually, um, there's a bit of a caveat to them as well. They, uh, the, if a cultist or a mortal or anyone gets a hold of this amulet, they can actually hold sway over. These demons, they're considered bound, and so uh, when you actually have the uh, the amulet and you control it, and there's really no rules about how to control it, I would say that if you attune to it, then you're able to communicate with the demon, gain some of its powers, and you can control whether or not it respawns. The other thing to be very, very aware of when it comes to these demons, though, is that they can also possess people. They can actually get inside of a host and run them, uh, kind of like a like a car, like a vehicle that they are controlling. Uh, and the host is aware of it the entire time. And if the uh, if the, these fiends ends up uh, in the flesh and the host dies. Um, or uh, if the demon is exorcised, the host is in danger of being dragged into the abyss with the demon as well. So, there's quite a lot of danger to these, and they're very, very different. So, um, we're not going to get into any of the uh, demon lords, or the uh, demon princes, depending on on which edition you're talking about here, but there are a few uh, of note. I just want to touch on them very, very briefly. Lolth, is a demon queen of spiders she's probably one of the most famous and she is the goddess of the drow there's Orcus, who's uh known as the demon prince of undeath or the blood lord um, and he is all about undead he's worshipped by the undead um, and some living creatures worship him too to channel the power of undeath uh, he is absolutely nihilistic and he's pretty famous there's uh, my main man, my favorite guy ever, uh, Demogorgon. Uh, some of you will pronounce it uh, Demigorgon, um, but that is uh, that's a stranger's thing pronunciation. Um, he is the 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 prince of demons, and he is one hundred percent madness. He inspires madness. There's Baphomet, who is like a a giant minotaur, um, and um, there's uh, Iyanagu. You know, Iyanagu has a special place in my heart. There's a couple of uh, my players maybe that are listening to this who just screamed Iyanagu at the top of their lungs um, because they play in a knoll heavy campaign, and Iyanagu is all about the gnolls. So uh, the last one that I wanted to mention really quick, I know that I'm, I'm kind of skimming over a bunch of these very, very quickly, um, but there's also Radkos, and Radkos is the uh, demon... Uh, Prince, who or the demon lord, who uh, is from the Ravnica cams, campaign setting, and he runs his own uh, special cult that takes the form of like a carnival that that puts on chaotic evil shows for people and enthralls them. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit later too. But let's get into them uh, specifically now. We got to go through them and as quickly as possible. So uh, grab your holy water and buckle up because here we go. The very first um, is the... We're going to start at, at the lowest uh, CR rating. i work our way up. And the very first one is the mains or Manes. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Um, a single one of these is, is called, uh, spelled M-A-N-E-S. So some people say main, Some people say Manes. Um, these are the evil souls that end up in the lower plains that don't become Lemures. If so, if they don't end up in the... Uh, Nine hells. Even if they end up on different planes of existence, they will turn into mains. Uh, they attack any non- fiendish creature they see, which is interesting because they will actually distinguish between devils and uh, and mortals. And Orcus can actually turn them into undead. Uh, other demon lords will eat them, and they will destroy them forever. These are these are small little CR 18 th- creatures, they look like uh, like little fat rotting men uh, that run around with claw attacks. They're very weak. They're mindless. They look like they're consistently rotting away, and they will actually dissipate into clouds of, of foul debris until, um, until they return after a day. Like, if you kill them, they will just erupt into this cloud. Now, nothing really comes of this cloud. It just kind of kind of infects the area. But they will come back a day later. Um, as a matter of fact, older editions required radiant damage to kill them if you wanted to add that flavor on. Otherwise, they will come back over and over and over again. Um, if a demon lord, however, eats them, that will destroy them forever. So these mains, they, they tend to come in huge groups, and they're just gibbering little um, monsters that, that look a little undead. Um, And they have really no minds of their own, and they're just pure chaos, wandering around trying to kill and smash and destroy and rend and claw. And they're just pure abject chaos. Uh, Level above them uh, at uh, the one-quarter CR rating is the Dretch. The Dretch is a fleshy green creature uh, that lumbers like a baboon on either four legs or two. Uh, they're slow, their faces look disfigured, I mean, they're disgusting, self-loathing demons doomed to an eternity of discontention. What a horrible state of existence for them. They're stupid, they're dim-witted, their very basic nature makes them unsuitable for complex tasks, so they're usually just left alone to run around, almost as, uh, as glorified guard dogs. I've seen them used that way quite a few times, but they are mean. And they travel in mobs. And that's the thing about demons is that they have the numbers. Whereas the devils have strategy and tactics, demons have pure numbers and they're pure carnage. Dretches, the, one of the things that I love about them is that they stink so badly, they emit a cloud that effectively poisons enemies. Uh, they actually have a mechanic for this. Um, and it uh, impedes their effectiveness on the battlefield. Um, their enemies. So, so much like the spell... Uh, slow will impede your enemy if you hit them with it. They're the dretch; these tiny little things are just surrounded by these clouds. So, um, running into two or three of these in and amongst other bigger demons, and you're going to see that as these demons start to uh, have unique powers and unique things about them, when they end up teaming up with other demons, it can radically change what's happening on the battlefield. And having, I mean, it's a CR quarter. If you were to drop, let's say, eight of these things in and amongst one of the big CR-14 or CR-16 groups, you could totally change how well uh, a party is able to handle it because of this slow effect. And this is this is just a tiny little nothing garbage uh, level fiend. These things are considered minor fiends. Um, when we talked about devils, there were greater devils and lesser devils. <laughs> these these um, demons are just considered minor. They're not even worth a classification as far as demonologists in Dungeons & Dragons go. Another one that is kind of below most people's um, purview is the Quasit. Now, I love me a good Quasit. Quasits are kind of the demonic answer to an imp, and they actually can be familiars as well for Warlocks, but we're not going to dig into that today. We're going to leave that uh, for um, a future Warlock episode. But these are tiny. Whereas the previous two were small, this is tiny. And this is, I think, the only tiny demon. Um, they're mischievous, scheming, wicked little spies and messengers that infest the lower planes. They're all over the place, not just in the abyss. They will go as far as they can. But other demons have been known to just eat or dismember Quasits for fun. These are like playthings for other demons when they're not being spies or they're not passing messages or they're not on errands for more powerful demons. The demon may uh, a demon may just pick it up and bite its head off and watch the body run around before it falls over. It's a, it's natural form looks like a two foot tall humanoid with large eyes and ears and a barbed tail and they got horns and clawed digits. But the cool thing about them is that they are able to shape change into animals. And they can turn invisible at will. That means that they can get pretty much anywhere. And they can do all sorts of damage and, and get past defenses very, very easily. They have poisonous claw attacks. And they actually have a scare attack that frightens enemies as well. Where they can pop out of invisibility and, uh, and scare someone. And then as long as that person can see the closet, they will remain scared which is a lot of fun to have four or five of these things. If your party splits up in a demonic area, uh, have four or five of these things just causing abject chaos amongst the party, having them running away and disadvantaged to attack and whatnot. The last one uh, on the list of what's considered to be minor demons is the uh, Bulazow. Now, this one is from... Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, where the other three were from the Monster Manual, and there's quite a few in the Monster Manual. Uh, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes really fleshed out uh, what we have as far as uh, demons go, although there are two other books, and we'll get to those shortly, um, that add even more. So the Bulizau, um, they're embodiments of like a natural creature's rage. They are nature's rage and chaos. They're foot soldiers in the demonic armies, and and they crave violence. They gather into mobs that fight each other until they find better targets, or until something stronger beats them into servitude. So think about that level of chaos. They just want to fight. All of the time they need it. They look like like bipedal goat demons with long barbed tails and open festering wounds that are crawling with maggots. They have crusted over eyes. like They are just diseased. And they reek of rotten meat so badly that they actually do necrotic damage to nearby non-demons. They are disgusting and they are consistently ripping into each other and their foes. The other thing, too, is because they've got kind of a goat theme, they're difficult to knock prone, and they can jump great distances without a running start. The other thing that's really fun is that their, their barbed tails have a, um, a disease effect. They cause diseases with their tail attacks. So um, these things are... They, they pack a punch for a CR3. They're packing quite the punch here. So... Um, Let's move past the Minor Demons, and we'll head up to what's, what's considered to be Type 1 Demons. Now, there's sort of an arbitrary ranking system based on the in-world um, demonology that uh, that goes on. There are six different types, but it's all ranked based on power. So we're going to jump into Type 1 now, um, and that would be the Bebao. The Bebao is the first demon. It's a CR4. It's the first one that we run into. From uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters, this is a medium-sized demon, and this one is interesting because it's not born of the Abyss. This one is born from the blood of Grast. Grast is considered to be the most charismatic and nearly the most lawful too. He kind of he uh, is a demon lord that straddles the, um, the kind of the boundary between an archdevil and a demon lord. Um, and some say, actually, that he was cast down from being an archdevil. Uh, and he ended up getting a foothold in the Abyss. Um, but these, these Babau, uh, they're born from his blood. So he ended up getting into a fight. And he ended up uh, bleeding. He started to bleed out. And that's when these um, babao showed up, um, sprouting up from the spilled blood. And they ran forward and they actually ended up swaying his side in, in his, uh, in, they swayed the battle in his favor. So, um, they're cunning. There's cunning as devils because Grazd himself is, is very smart and intelligent like a devil is, but they're also as bloodthirsty as demons. These, these guys have pitch black skin that that's pulled taut across their gaunt forms and they have a single curved horn that rises from the back of their heads. Uh, they're innate spellcasters, but they don't really have any offensive spells to speak of. They use spears, but they can also attack with claws. And uh, the greatest thing that they have in their arsenal is a gaze that can weaken their enemies. So having two or three of these uh, that can just kind of wither and weaken their enemies' effectiveness in combat, uh, this can be a great way to buff up uh, one of the more powerful demons as well. Next is the. And, uh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this one. It's from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. It's also a CR four. It's a pronounced. I pronounce it a dibuk, but I've heard it pronounced dibuk and dibuk as well. These things are bizarre. This is this is when we start to see kind of the radical different side of of what the demons have to offer as far as um, the physicality goes. We've gone from foot soldiers and and. Baboon-like creatures and little undead monsters running around, and therefore they've all been bipedal so far. But now we end up with a translucent flying jellyfish with long tendrils. I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. All of a sudden, these things just decided to sprout up from the abyss one day and, and start floating around. Um, kind of as they please. They prefer to possess corpses, actually, and they're kind of linked to the concept of death. Um, But they're so much fun to use, and they really, really hearken to the idea of um, demonic possession. This is the first one that really leans into that direction. They prefer to possess corpses, and they move around in these bodies. They pilfer the memories of the deceased, accessing the capabilities of the dead person, and then they impersonate the host. So think about that for a minute. If you have an NPC that dies, maybe they die off screen or maybe it's, a, it's in question about what's happening or, or your players have to go off to find some sort of cure for a disease as the king is wasting away and they come back and the king seems to be 100% better again and has all of the memories and passes all of the tests that, uh, that a doppelganger would fail or a changeling. Um, and it can, you know, use all the capabilities. It can still cast the same spells, you know. It may get a free pass for a little while, because the Dibbuk quickly give in to cruel manipulations that betray their true nature. They behave horrifically, doing some real exorcist-level shit. Like they throw up blood, they excrete maggots out of wounds, um, and out of orifices. They, they contort their limbs in impossible ways. For those of you that have seen The Exorcist. Think about the the ability to uh, that she has to like spin her head around, or puke up vomit, or uh, like projectile vomit um, that horrid pea soup. Um, the most horrible part of that movie for me was her walking on her on her hands and, and feet upside down, like like backwards down the stairs. This is the kind of stuff that a dibek would do to scare the holy shit out of people around it, because it loves it. It absolutely loves to do this. It's just part of what a Divic is. It's also an innate spellcaster. While it's in its uh, jellyfish form, it has incorporeal movement. Um, and it has a mechanic, like there's actually a mechanic for all the horrifying acts. And if you uh, if you look it up in Mordenkind's Tome of Foes, you can see what the examples that they have are. Um, it has tendril attacks as well, and a recharging corpse possession mechanic. I would hate to run into one of these things, um, in like a recent battlefield where there are corpses all over the place um, and people are going through. Like the battle's just ended, you can picture a couple of these things descending down into the into the battlefield and just taking over the bodies of captains and lieutenants and whatnot. That maybe mages that were involved in the battle and then um, jumping from body to body. Uh, it doesn't really say whether or not the body takes the damage, or they do, but I myself would flavor it that uh, that there would be kind of the, the body's hit points in AC, and you can really only kill the Dybbuk when it's free of a body, when it's out in the open. I think that would make it a whole lot more challenging, and would raise it from about a CR4 to a CR6. Next on the list, again another CR4, is the Shadow Demon. Now... This one's a bit unique as far as how they come to be. Demons that are killed, but can't reform in the Abyss for whatever reason. If they get trapped, uh, if they're stuck on the Prime Material Plane, they sometimes will turn into shadow demons. They exist outside of the hierarchy. Um, for this reason, you you can't have a a demon lord turn a shadow demon, or turn a, a babau into a shadow demon or um or a mains into a shadow demon they kind of operate by their own rules they eat fear and drink doubt they are consistently i mean it's right in the name they hide in shadows bright light reveals their true form as an incorporeal shadow with long arms and claws and huge wings and they have like non-distinct lower halves they just kind of disappear kind of a. Uh, Kind of like um, the ghosts and Ghostbusters. Um, they don't always have legs. They just kind of dissipate into nothingness. Uh, they, The shadow demons easily hide in the dark. They suffer from light sensitivity, which means that they're less effective in bright light. And they have incorporeal movement, which means they can move through objects and walls. They're vulnerable to radiant damage. So everything here is all about light. Having some shadow demons inside a a haunted keep or a demonic or corrupted castle that are able to strike and run over and over again, that would be very, very powerful. Um, two or three of these could really shake up a party. Um, the other fun thing about it, too, is that if your players are expecting shadows and they're prepped for undead and you give them a shadow demon controlling the shadows, they're going to have a real surprise waiting for them. Coming in next at CR5 is the Belgura. Um, the Balgura is another popular one that I've seen over and over again uh, in campaigns because they are low level but they pack quite a punch. These are giant red ape-like demons. Um, they look kind of like uh, demonic orangutans and they are just pure brutality that move in, in small packs and they display gruesome trophies so they will like pull the head and like the skull and the spine off of their victims and display it as like a belt. Oh, hold on, I gotta hear Dan. Ah, uh, yeah, midnight snack time. Gonna eat this snack. Gonna eat the snacks. Ah, uh, yeah, cookies, mm-hmm. midnight snacks. Midnight snacks. Oh, okay. I'm gonna be quiet again. Uh the belgura has uh, has large tusks coming from its lower jaw, and it has broad shoulders. It moves and acts like an ape, mostly, uh, and it has incredible speed, uh, especially when climbing. It has a running leap mechanic that gives it an intense mobility, and it can become reckless like a barbarian um, when it attacks. Uh, it can also cast some basic spells, which gives it some uh, some versatility, and it's got a pretty good uh, multi-attack, considering how much damage output that it's doing on a regular basis. If you have a tall throne room, or you're out in the wilderness, Balguras that can get up columns and in the branches of trees and into the rafters of buildings are really going to be able to flex their muscles, and they're going to be a great set piece. The next one is the Casme, or I've heard people pronounce it uh, Chasm, but it's a, it's Casme. This is a CR-6, and this is part humanoid, part fly. These demons have four spindly legs that can cling to walls and ceilings, And they got a set of wings that not only lets them fly, but also emits a maddening droning noise that can render creatures unconscious for 10 minutes. You heard that right. They have a mechanic that can knock your players out for 100 rounds. They're interrogators, they're taskmasters, and they love to torture creatures. They have a talent for spawning demons who have deserted their their lords, and they love to return these demons to their demon lords, and then, as a result, they get to torture them. Their main attack, though, um, is kind of a sting attack with a long long spindle at the front of their head, kind of like a mosquito, um, and it causes damage to maximum hit points. Which, of course, everyone knows that if your max hit points hit zero, you're in serious trouble. You can't be healed. Um, this droning noise is a lot of fun because uh, you can hear this thing coming, and then when it gets within a certain radius of you, uh, you better start making saves. Uh, the fact that it can cling to ceilings and walls and it has essentially uh, spider climb means that it's, um, it's difficult to get to. You're relying on your ranged um your ranged players in the party to be able to help out the barbarian who only has a great axe or the rogue who only has a a dagger a plus one dagger so you're gonna end up if you if you're gonna be fighting demons you have to think about the fact that they're going to be flying we haven't really talked on a whole lot of that but you want to keep your distance um from a lot of these and a lot of them do fly as well which actually brings us into our next one another cr6 is the vrock um, pretty popular. This one's been around for a while in D&D. And these are stupid vulture demons that just they just love to cause pain and carnage. If you think of like a, a bluish purple um, vulture demon, we're already on the same page. It's exactly what you're thinking. They stink so badly, but you'll hear them before you smell them. And they like to stun enemies with their shrieks. This is another one where you've got an auditory attack it might uh, might be useful for players to be putting um, little balls of watered up uh, cloth and material into their ears to uh, to keep some of these CR6 creatures at bay. And the other cool thing about the Vrock that I like quite a bit is that they can shake their wings uh, when they're up in the air and rain toxic spores down on their prey below before they swoop into attack. So we're up to CR6 now and That was the type one monsters. These are considered the weakest demons. Before we move into the type two demons, I just want to go through that again. The weakest ones can pop invisible. They can shape change. They can fly. They've got auditory attacks. They can um, possess corpses and, and move through walls. This is a powerful, powerful kind of, of monster. And you can see why a lot of DMs really like to play with demons. Um, they're very unique, and a lot of them have radically different flavors to them, but they'll work together as well. Next on the list is, uh, is one from Mordenkind's Tome of Foes. This is our first Type 2 demon. Uh, this is the Armonite. Think Demonic Centaur. Um, centaurs um, are pretty... Um, they're. I'm trying, trying to find the right word here for centaurs. They, uh, they're abrasive. I guess would be a right word, for them. Um, but these uh, Armonites um, are even more than that. They're consistently looking for war, not just battles and fights. They want war. They want to fight. Um, there's kind of a tribal nature to centaurs in, um, in D&D. And uh, th- that's kind of true of the Armonite as well. They like to move in packs, um, and uh, they will they will move great distances at great speeds, and they've got actually quite a few um, physical attacks that they can do. Their multi-attack is, is pretty deadly um, because they get hooves, claw, and tail attack in each round. Um, their courage, it's like it's beyond stupidity. They will attack and kill even each other if there are no other enemies around because they are just so hell bent on battles and skirmishes and fights. Um, they're not so much going to um, be that level of chaotic like the uh, babau was. The babau um, liked to uh, to or sorry the uh, uh, belazau. Uh, they like to fight. These are the goat ones um, that that stink and that are always rotting away, um, and fighting amongst each other. Those, those are like one-on-one or little brawls, the Armonites are a little bit more structured. Um, the other fun thing that they have to, uh, to break up enemy ranks is, uh, they have the ability to shoot freaking lightning. That's kind of the first time that we've heard of any sort of, uh, elemental attack beyond poison so far, um, in, uh, in Demons, but there's quite a variety of stuff coming. So um, the Armonite is a lot of fun to, to hit your players with because the people that are familiar with the monster menu are not going to expect this coming, and two or three of these can wreck house. So um, I really enjoy what Wornkind's Tome of Foes has to offer. Uh, the next one is the uh, the Maraji. This is another CR7 medium creature, um, whereas we, we've dealt with a few large creatures, the uh, the Chasme or the Chasme, the Vrock, the Armonite. These are all large creatures. Um, these are big uh, fly-human hybrids and vulture demons and demonic centaurs. And then we get into to these kind of special, weird um, afterthoughts when it comes to the... Um, the abyssal demonic forces. Here's the lore behind it. When Dorisane, the king of ghouls, corrupted an elven society, he created a new kind of demon. The maurajai. These are elves that have become ghouls. So the way that they work is, if they take 10 minutes to consume a fresh corpse, they immediately take its shape. And then they can infiltrate society as this new, um, as this, this person that they just killed. I think they have, uh, they have an hour. If they take 10 minutes within that first hour to, to eat that corpse and like a ghoul would, cause ghouls and ghasts are consistently, uh, eating, then are eating their, uh, corpses and the dead, then, uh, then they, they will infiltrate society as that person. So think about like ghouls that can go undercover. Within a few days, this new form then begins to rot away anyway because it's still dead and you can just picture like it someone in the middle of a diplomatic meeting or standing in a marketplace and like their nose falls off. You may be able to use uh, leprosy to cover up some of this a little bit. Um, but otherwise it looks kind of like uh, like a cross between an elf and a ghoul in its natural form um, and it often leads hordes of ghouls and ghasts, I mean it's the king of ghouls that ended up uh, creating these in the first place. They've got claw attacks that can paralyze enemies, and bite attacks that do charisma damage. That's one of the few times that we actually get to see stat damage, and it's charisma damage specifically. There are going to be a lot of different players that are in for a world of hurt with this, especially if they're paralyzed. If the charisma is reduced to zero, that creature dies and becomes a ghoul 24 hours later. So this thing is adding to its horde all of the time. The other thing about a Majerai is that it can bring a dead ghoul or ghast back from the dead with all of its hit points as a rechargeable action. So if one of these things is standing on the sidelines and it's got five or six ghouls that are attacking a low-level party... And a couple of the ghouls fall down. Those ghouls will pop back up over and over and over again. Demons, like devils, have the ability to summon more demons. That's one of their variants. But a lot of the times they don't even need to. They can just reform themselves and come back 24 hours later like like the mains. Or they can bring ghouls back. This is another one. This could look like an elvish ghoul that you can hide in the midst. And so when the cleric runs up and tries to turn undead, you're just going to laugh at them. Because you have a CR7 demon in amongst the low-level ghouls and ghasts. These are some great options for high tier 1 and low tier 2 play. The last one um, that's in type 2 demons in, the, in that classification, we uh, we get another large demon. It's the Hezrao. It l- kind of looks like a large uh, slod. For those of you who don't know slods, who aren't uh, familiar with it think of a big demonic looking um, frog like creature Uh, it's large sized as well and it's got uh, spines and and little spikes all over its back Um, they're foot soldiers in the army and this is one of the first times that we actually hear about the army of demons Uh, I don't imagine the demons are in rank and file like the devils would be Uh, they're more like a militia um, like berserkers out out on the field where everybody's just running forward and to kill as much as possible um the hezra are foot soldiers they often get tricked by more powerful demons into sacrificing themselves in battle like they're pretty powerful in and of themselves um they've got uh, a stench that poisons nearby enemies which is pretty powerful um But whereas other demons of uh, type 2 and above may retreat to sow more destruction and corruption and chaos later, um, the Hezra can easily be tricked to just battle it out for as long as possible. I think that if you're doing some uh, tier 3 demonic fighting, um, you can use some of these higher, more powerful demons with a couple of Hezra lieutenants to kind of get in the way and cover a retreat. So that's the end of, of uh, Type 2. Now let's jump into Type 3. We've got uh, we've got a couple of interesting things here uh, from the Monster Manual. I love the flavor of demons. And one of the best flavors is the Glabrazu. The Glabrazu are just ridiculous looking. It has a head of a hairless goat. They've got large spikes on their shoulders and backs. Uh, They've got giant arms. they got a set of giant arms that end in like crab-like claws and a second set of arms underneath them uh, that are smaller, that are uh, regular sized. Um, This is a large creature and it's got quite a crazy reach on it, but they've got a second set of smaller arms that are more appropriate for a a smaller uh, or like a medium sized creature. The crazy thing about it is this sounds like it would be a powerhouse in battle with four arms and a giant goat head and large spikes. And, and I mean, they do have some powerful spells and their claws do grapple easily. But they really like um, sowing destruction through temptation more than anything else. They often offer their services to mortals and, uh, and they love tempting mortals with power and wealth. They can fight, they really can. But they would much rather use deception and uh, and secret treasure that they've massed over the last few years um, that they've may or may not have, right? Because they are deceitful, but they will use the, the promise of this to corrupt mortals. And this is a CR9 creature. Um and we actually see that this this bleeds into uh, the next monster on the list, the next demon the Dregloth. Now the Dregloth is, we're ducking back down for a minute to CR7. It's large as well, but it requires you to know a little bit about the Glabrezu and how deceitful they are, and the fact that they like to make deals with mortals. Now the Dregloth surprised me at first. Most Yugoloths, which we'll cover in the next episode, um, have names that end in Loth, so the first time that I heard of a Dregloth, or a Dregloth, I just thought it was another Yugoloth but they're actually half drow half glabrazu and they're born from high priestesses. So this is a glabrazu who have, um, uh, so there would be like a glabrazu father because it's a high priestess specifically that has seduced a drow high priestess with the power, um, with the demonic power and the spawn that they, uh, that they end up giving birth to is a drag Um, Dregloths have innate magic and brute strength. They're large creatures. Um, they're as big as an ogre. They have four arms, a black-purple skin, yellow-white hair. Uh, they have two sets of arms, right? So that's the same as a glabrezu does. One set of arms is long and ends in claws. But whereas it was like crab claws or pinchers for the glabrezu, these are like long, multi-fingered claws for the for the Dregloth. the other set is just normal drow arms that hang down um, underneath. They've got red eyes, they've got a long snout and sharp teeth. Like, they they look like demons. You're not going to mistake them for drow. This is as close as you're going to get to a demonic drow beyond the driders and and crazy spiders and whatnot that that come with the drow. Um, But that's a topic for another episode as well. Um, Normally, when a um, high priestess... Uh, tries to uh, get the power of a glabrezu, or they decide that they want to make a Dregloth, the ritual fails, but every once in a while it works. And this is actually seen as a blessing, as a blessing from Loth, I saw almost said a bluffing, a blessing from Loth, um, And uh, which I'm sure makes these glabrezus very happy. Uh, dregloths allow drow houses um, to attack other houses. Uh, normally there are drow houses and you need to know a little bit about drow society so really quickly um, drow houses are much like noble houses and they have uh, a, like, political uh, intrigue to go back and forth to gain power, dregloss allowed direct physical attacks um, but they're still seen primarily as like favored slaves or consorts even, which is it's own weird nasty thing to think about they're, they're not really considered a part of drow society and drag loss rebel against this instinctively. They can't stand the fact that they're considered slaves. They're relatively intelligent and they know that they've got th- this demonic power that gives them the edge over the average drow, but they will often just take their misgivings out on rival drow houses. Um, Most don't bother with complicated magic because they like to physically attack. They're nearly addicted to the idea of physically attacking other creatures. And so as long as you can allow them to do that, they will continue to over and over again. And you can kind of keep them appeased. Um, Some can wield greater spells, but they often don't. Because of the Drow heritage, strangely enough, this is a demon that has fey ancestry, which means it can't be charmed or put to sleep. And it's got some spells that are kind of uncommon to demons, like uh, Confusion and Dancing Lights and Fairy Fire. This is the chaotic nature of what demons are bringing to the table here. It's not simply just uh, just a round of, of destruction and madness, but it's corrupting drow bloodlines and mixing with fey ancestry. Um, you can find the dragloth in Volo's uh, Guide to Monsters. Um, And there are a few other demons there, but we'll touch on those a little later as well. The last one in uh, type three demons is the Yoklol. This, excuse me, this is another Lulth adjacent demon. Um, They're naturally tall pillars of yellow slime with single malevolent eyes. Um, And the Yakhlul is a shape changer. It has a poisonous touch. But it can uh, change shape specifically to both, um, or to either a drow woman or to a spider. When they turn into a drow woman, they still have their poison touch. But when they become the spider, uh, it translates into becoming a venomous bite. Um, They act as handmaidens to Lolth. Often. Going out uh, based on her command to uh, accomplish things in other planes and outside of her demon web pits. Um, but they will only ever serve her. You're never going to see a Yoklal anywhere else. And they will um, only ever answer to her. So they have spider climb, which is neat. Um, but it makes sense for the spider aspect of them. But even as these these yellow slime pillars, they can climb walls even as as a Drow Woman, if you see a Drow Woman just start running up the wall, it's got spider climb, and it's probably a Yaklal in disguise. Interestingly enough, they can also detect thoughts. So they have the ability to cast that. So they're gonna know when they're when they're found out. They also have Web as a spell and dominate person. The other thing that's really fun about them is that they can turn into a toxic mist that poisons creatures. That, uh, that share the same space as it, but it can only move in mist form. It can't act. It has better defenses in this form, and it can move through, you know, narrow spaces and whatnot. As long as it's not airtight, then it'll be able to move and escape. Which means that if you piss off a uh, yaklal, chances are that it's going to do some damage and run away. It'll probably try to uh, deceive you first into thinking that it is a um, a drow woman of some sort. And then it'll it'll attack you and book it. I don't see a lot of these guys sticking around to get to the um, to to fight to the death. Let's move on to type four. Now there are only a couple of type four demons here, and we're moving up. Where the, the Yaklol is a CR ten. We're getting into the second half of the CRs now, um, and that's the uh, up at CR eleven from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes is the Elklith. Uh Alkaliths are disgusting fungus that appears around doors, windows, and other, other passageways and portals. Like You can picture them in a hallway or an archway. The cool thing about them is they weaken the fabric of reality and allow other demons into the material plane. These things are harbingers of doom and omens of ruin. There is a demon lord called uh, Jweeblex, and these things are direct spawns of Dweeblex. So this is another one that you can't just um, promote a, a smaller, less powerful demon up into this, this medium-sized fungus demon. Um, and actually, when they're spawned, they don't immediately have sentience. They gain it over time. And then they use this this intelligence to try to find whatever way it can into the material realm and then open up portals to bring through massive demonic armies. These things I I would use as a ticking clock inside a, a uh, campaign where you find out that this thing is here, and it is weakening the fabric of reality, and there are small, low-level demons all over the place, but you have to kill this one before it opens the portal and lets bigger, badder, nastier demons through. Even most summoners consider the existence of these things too great a risk, and they won't summon them. Because if given time, they will open up portals to the abyss and just allow sheer chaos to come through. And not in a way that you can harness the power, but in a way that the demons themselves will start running and ruling your plane of existence. Um. Being within 30 feet of the Alkalith uh, can cause madness. There's actually a mechanic where where you start to hear um, uh, like nagging whispers in the back of your mind, and, and it can drive you mad. But if you get within 15 feet of it, uh, now you're within range of its acidic tentacle attacks. So this is a fungus. So I, it looks a little bit like a like a moss when you look at the picture in um Tome of Foes. Um, but you can see, you can picture these these tendrils, these tentacles whipping out and hitting people and doing acid damage when they hit. Um, maybe you can put this thing, I would have it escape out into the wilderness and be very, very difficult to find. You'd have to start looking for um, trees that are close together that might um, accidentally form an archway um, that it can start to um, kind of sow its seeds of, of weakening the mortal plane, and the fabric of reality. I really like Alkaliths as a strange and interesting kind of demon. There's nothing like this for any other kind of monster out there. So they're a lot of fun. We we jump up to CR13 now with the Nalfeshne. I don't know what to make of these guys. A lot of people love them and they're really popular, but Nalfeshne's are... they're large, massive, um... Bipedal, half boar, half ape, um, with tiny black feathered wings—they're uh, just disgusting, weird-looking creatures. They're, they're pig demons with like the the body of an ape, um, and and these these little black wings. Like they look like little angel wings that look like they're too small for for the creature, but they still allow it to fly. These things feed on hatred and despair, and they love humanoid flesh. As much as they get off on on creating anger and rage and hopelessness, they will give up just to just to, you know, eat a halfling. They telepathically command demonic troops as they fly above the battlefield, and they often just head over to vulnerable humanoids on the sidelines and either eat or kidnap them. I mean, they like to eat their captives alive using rusted cutlery in like a mockery of refined dining, which is a load of fun. If you find out that that the wizard got captured and you've got to go rescue her, and you open up um, the dining hall in the Demon Keep and you find that she is like bound on a giant serving platter and there's a Nelfeshny there with like a rusted fork sitting there like putting a bib on, going all right, here we go, time to eat. It, it, this is such a unique and weird, um, almost comedic demon, but I feel like you could really use it to be a, a perversion of of nobility and and finery. Uh, and if used properly this could be really interesting um, and a new flavor to add to your to your demon campaign. They also uh, emit horrifying, scintillating, multicolored lights uh, that causes and instills fear in in mortals or in enemies um that that see it so they've got this weird light show that goes on um and the other thing about it which makes them really dangerous is they can teleport as an action which which really leans into the idea that they kidnap people um as much as they fly and as much as they like to kidnap and run and they use telepathy to control the battlefield they really do feel like they're uh they stay on the outskirts and They've got kind of a ranged feel to them, even though they don't really have ranged attacks. Besides this is light show that they can do. Their claws, you don't want to get in a melee damage. These things will just wreck you. They are powerful and they are nasty. Next up, on Tom of Foes is um, the Wastrolith. So, we're in type 4 now. Wastroliths, I mean, I, now that I've said the name... Half of my players are shuddering. They will remember these things as being just nasty, large aquatic demons with long serpentine bodies covered in large, nimble fins. They have fish heads with razor-sharp teeth. They have two arms, each ending in a large, hooked claw. And they can travel on land and spoil nearby water sources. These things are are all about corruption and, and utter destruction. You don't want to go up against one of these... They've got incredible melee stats to them. But interestingly enough, these are the ones that uh, that can destroy a settlement very, very easily. They not only spoil nearby water sources, but they spoil whatever body of water that they're in as well. So a um, small village in the desert that has a, a well system uh, may just end up disappearing over the span of of two weeks because a Wasterlith moved in underground, spoiled the water, and forced everyone, either they got sick and died or or they had to leave. Um, If Interestingly, if a demon drinks the water, they will actually regain hit points. So maybe having these guys at the back of a giant uh, demon horde would be a good thing so that any demon that, that needs a little bit of help can retreat, drink some of this water, and then run back into battle again. If any other creature drinks it, though, they take massive poison damage and they get the poison condition as well. Um, even if it's underwater, um, this thing is just a nightmare to deal with. They, they cause an undertow. They've got an effect here that makes everything underwater difficult terrain. So, um, not only are people doing, doing athletics checks to have to swim, but it's at half speed. Um, and considering that the Wastrolith has 10-foot reach on their melee attacks, um, this can be a real issue. The other really fun thing is they have an acidic spit that shoots out 60 feet, does crazy damage, grabs an enemy, and then drags them the entire 60 feet towards the Wastrolith and often just into the water. That seems like an overpowered kind of a grasp and reel i mean this is it's a cr13 but it seems to be more effective at grabbing people and reeling them in than even a roper is so i really like the wasser they're super flavorful and uh they add an aspect of a demonic presence to maybe coastal towns or or settlements that require and rely on uh drinking water and clean water next on the list (laughs) is the Navasu. The Navasu or CR-15. They're medium-sized creatures. They're from Mordenkainen's Toma And they are lanky, black demons with a set of wings sprouting from their backs. I mean, they resemble kind of like demon-bat hybrids. Um, and they will eat any soul that they can find, even other demons, which is one of the only taboos in the Abyss. You can get up to pretty much any horrific shit that you can think of in the Abyss, but if you eat the souls of other demons, that means that they can't respawn. So this is like the the only thing that that is really frowned upon. Um, Nabasu's for this reason exist on the fringes of the abyss, uh, striking when they can and moving in large flocks. If uh, if they want to take down larger prey, or singly if they want to prey on smaller creatures, so they um, will actually attack large demons, um, and uh, I don't really see these guys being a, a part of the army necessarily, and I don't know why there would ever be a uh, demon lord that would turn a lesser demon into one of these. So, um, the cool thing about them is that they exist in magical shrouds of darkness. So, they are emanating this darkness all the time and they're very very difficult to see at all and you need some way to be able to pierce the uh, magical darkness with some sort of magical light Uh, if it kills a creature and spends 10 minutes with the corpse uh, it can eat the soul and regain hit points and if a soul is eaten like this it's gone it's dead it can only be returned with a wish spell there's no resurrection available if one of these guys gets a kill and then 10 minutes with the corpse. I expect them to get a kill and then try to fly away. So if you've got one of these things, and CR-15, these guys, are they're meaty. They're beefy. They can do some damage. If they swoop down and they manage to kill the fighter in the party, they're going to retreat with the fighter's body. And now it's a race to get up to the top of the cliff or into the the bell tower, wherever this thing is going to hide, wherever this thing has a nest, to get back there and get some heals, get some sort of resurrection magic um, onto that fighter as quickly as possible because the character may be gone forever if you don't. Um, Now, the other thing too is that because they're in magical darkness, you're always attacking with disadvantage. So you're trying to be able to see this as much as you can, but if a target manages to see a Nabasu; it can then steal their souls with its gaze. And and the mechanic for this is it causes maximum hit point damage. What it does is it looks at you if the attack hits, or I think it's if your save fails. Um, It causes damage to your maximum hit points, so you drop by a significant number. And then they also gain temporary hit points off of this as well. Uh, If a creature dies from this gaze, it then immediately becomes a ghoul. That's a lot of fun. There's a lot of flavor to this one. We're seeing that demons really do operate different from devils. Um, they're more they're more bestial in a lot of ways and they all have unique, horrifying aspects to them. Um, the uh, So that's the end of, um, of the Type 4 uh, demons. That moves us up into Type 5. And this is where things are starting to get a little bit crazy. And I would think twice about throwing these at any party that isn't. Very experienced. So first and foremost, we have the Merilith. I freaking love the Merilith. And I think that a Merilith should be at the center of any good UNT T campaign. Uh, these are large creatures uh, from the monster manual. They've had a lower body of a large serpent and an upper body of a humanoid female with six freaking arms. And each one of them has a scimitar. They are fast, strategic and furious, and they often lead Demotic hordes into battle. These are the the captains and commanders, and they they have seven attacks in battle. And they get a reaction after every turn in combat. That's not one reaction per uh, per round of combat. After every player goes, these guys get a reaction if they can take one. Um, so that makes them super deadly and ridiculous to have to try to fight. Um, their, uh, their tail can grapple, they can teleport, and they can also use their reaction to raise their AC by five. They have a parry. So um, if you go to hit them, and remember, every round they can do this. They can raise their AC by five um, for that attack. If they can see the attacker coming in and that attacker is using a melee weapon. So they're essentially parrying and blocking with one of the swords. That makes these guys absolutely crazy to have to deal with. Um, I like them, but you have got to have a pretty strong um, party who is going to be able to capitalize on their action economy here because the Marilith, while it may be a CR 16, if your players get caught in a death spiral, things are going to get way out of control really, really quickly. Um, so I, I would caution against using these guys, um, and, uh, and hopefully you won't, uh, uh, you won't end up with a TPK off of using a Marilith. The next one on the list is the Garistro. Garistros are huge creatures. Here we go. We're starting to get into the huge ones now. Uh, this one is from the Monster Manual, uh, and these are 20 foot tall fiendish looking minotaurs. That easily navigate labyrinths and tunnels, and it is the perfect siege monster. Um, they're often kept as like a demon lord's pet. Um, they are. They also often carry a, a palanquin on their back. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, think of like a like elephants do with these these structures on their back that transport smaller creatures. Um, uh, a garistro will actually carry smaller demons on its back. They're hulking. They're pretty dumb, um, and, uh, and they're very deadly. They often charge into battle. They've got a charge mechanic that causes massive damage with their gore attack, and they uh, are considered siege monsters, so they're great at destroying structures and buildings. If they charge at a building, they could knock down city walls in a single turn. One of these things coming at a party is going to scatter that party quickly, And it is going to then focus on people and just charge and do as much damage as possible. And it's going to be smart enough to know to bring the ceiling down on top of everybody. And smart enough to know that if it picks up speed, it can hit someone. So you're going to have players that are hiding behind things and trying to get away and turning invisible and flying. And this guy is going to just scatter a party, which is fantastic. The next one, which I absolutely love... From Mordenk- Mordenkind's Tomophos is the Cibriax. This is a CR eighteen demon. Um, it's another huge sized uh, creature, and it's so unique in the fact that it is a floating mass of misshapen flesh. They look. I mean, the picture in the in Mordenkind's Tomophos reminds me of uh, of Krang from the old Ninja Turtles uh, cartoon shows. But far more disgusting, they—they they are consistently um, dripping blood and bile from open sores and wounds. Nobody really knows what the deal is with these Sibriaxes because they may just be as ancient as the abyss itself. They may be tied directly to the abyss and its power, um, and wherever they—they uh, they drip this bile and and blood down upon the ground, uh, the ground becomes befouled uh, and the fluids end up corrupting the ground permanently. Sybriaxes hoard information, and they love magical secrets, and they often act as advisors and oracles for other demons and the demon lords. But some of them are pretty secretive, and they will hold on to their knowledge as much as they can as well. They can create massive numbers of, uh, of other demons just purely from a from a mechanic that they have, and I'm going to touch on that in a, in a second, these other demons, but they have something called um, uh, Warp Flesh, which is just a lot of fun to to play with. There's an awesome table in Mordenkine's Tome of Foes that outlines the different kinds of body horror that a warped creature might suffer. Um, and as a matter of fact, some creatures actually seek out Sibreaxes to gain the powers of these, um, these warpings, these... these these misshapen uh, aspects to their physical bodies. Uh, is uh, poison the area around them, um, and that includes creatures that get too close. Uh, they can cast spells. They have legendary resistances and magical resistances. They can squirt bile up to 120 feet, doing massive acid damage. And these guys hand out levels of exhaustion each round, like nobody's business. In it also has legendary actions. So, I'm going to say all that again. They're poisoning the environment and creatures around them, legendary resistances, magical resistances, legendary actions, and 120 feet of a massive uh, amount of acid damage that it sends out, and it's doing levels of exhaustion with its attacks. You don't just waltz up to one of these things, you know, out of the blue, and think, oh, maybe I can take it. These are going to be probably the penultimate villain in any campaign that has to do with demons. So let's talk for a second about the fact that they can uh, warp the flesh of creatures. There are a lot of different cultists and whatnot that will seek them out, that will try to get more power. They've got amazing, uh, this chart, it's hilarious and amazing uh, what kind of horrid shit that it can do to people. But (laughs) if given enough time, they can create massive numbers of what's called Rutterkin. Rutterkin are CR2 demons that are medium-sized. They're slow-moving, hideous, twisted creatures that are covered in boils and legions with body parts growing in the wrong places because they've been twisted by the Cybriacs. They move in massive mobs that chase after non-demons in the Abyss. They're just roving packs of almost like guard dogs, but again, they're slow. They're like an eventual horde um, of like of like zombies. Um They cause incredible fear, and their bite contains a nasty poison that can only be saved against once a day, which means if you fail your save, you are poisoned. Their poison affects creatures who, if they're not careful, um, will become abyssal wretches. If you die while you are poisoned by a rudderkin, you become an abyssal wretch. Now, what the fuck is an abyssal wretch? An abyssal wretch is another kind of demon, a CR. One quarter. These are creatures that, um, if poisoned by the rutterkin's bite attack and reduced to zero hit points, become disfigured, and their their flesh and skin uh, twist around on their bones, as, and they rise up as these these misshapen um, humanoids um, that, that follow the Rudderkin mob mindlessly, biting and attacking anyone they can, and they're just as slow as the mob. So you think you've got this, this cibriax there that knows that there's something coming to get it because it's full of omens and and magical ideals, and they know the party is coming, so what do they do? They raise a horde of Rudderkin, and they send the Rudderkin out, and the Rudderkin end up finding whoever they can and turning them into abyssal wretches. So you don't just have one horde, you have freaking two hordes. I really wanted to yell there, but I don't want to wake up Dan. So, I'm not doing this again. The next time that I record, I'm not going to record here because I'm getting paranoid. So, there's this cascading effect with the Cibriacs. and This is one of the only times that we see um, a non-demon lord spawning new kinds of demons. So, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But let's, let's go to the big bad that you've all been waiting for. The most infamous. The Balor. CR-19 Huge. These are... Like they're vaguely bull-like bipeds with red skin, large horns, and giant red bat wings that protrude from their backs. These are the generals of demonic armies. They wield a flaming whip and a long sword wreathed in lightning. They are fueled by a fury that explodes out of them, inflicting major injuries to anyone nearby when they die. So if you actually end up managing to kill one of these things, it will go down and it will explode just wiping out party members left and right. This has happened to me in campaigns, and it is we had to go rescue the soul of a fallen uh, party member because a short showed up. We managed to kill it, and we were not ready for the explosion that was coming. They also have a flaming aura of destruction around them, so here we go. We get... Well, I often complain that there aren't enough auras in D&D, and they seem to be saved for these high-level creatures... I love the idea that anyone that gets close to this creature, to a Baylor ends up taking fire damage and massive amounts of it. And while they can teleport, they're incredibly fast with just the basic movement. So this thing is going to move around a battlefield doing elemental damage, getting in close with as many people as possible to hit with its aura. And it is going to be able to fly to... Um, to get into strategic areas and it's never coming alone. Okay. I mean, unless you summon one, but by God, why would you, this thing is not coming in by itself. This thing is coming in with, uh, a, an entire army at its back, or at least some sort of strike team with it of more powerful demons. Um, if there's a strong demonic presence of a Baylor moves in on the material plane, you know that he's got, he's got at least a small legion with him of lesser demons. So, this uh, this is a campaign-ending um, bad guy right here, and I absolutely love him as a big bad evil guy. But you'd think that that's where it would end. That would be the most powerful of them, and for a lot of you, you would think, okay, that's where that's where this episode ends. But no, at CR twenty-one in Wardenkind's Tome of Foes is the Malidius. The Malidius is twelve feet of red-skinned humanoid with two heads, one of a goat and one of a serpent with huge fangs. They are the second in command to the Demon Lords of the Abyss. These are beings that have been twisted into the form of a melidius as a reward for greatly pleasing a Demon Lord, and as a result, they become guards of their master's uh, possessions, uh, enforcers of their master's will and agents of carnage and death. And here's the thing is, they never plot against their masters, ever. Because the serpentine head, the snake head side of this, acts as a conduit that their master may look through at their own whim without warning, and even communicate through. And when it speaks, it can actually communicate with the voice of whichever demon lord that it represents. Each Melidius carries a... Weapon that its essence, the, the demon lord's essence, is bound to. And each demon lord's weapon takes a different form. For example, uh yianagu grants a flail, uh, Frazer Blue grants a battle axe, Orcus grants a morning star, but they all have the same kind of uh, mechanic to them. If the Melidius dies, the weapon melts into slime if the weapon is stolen the melidius will do anything to get it back because this is it, it is made from the essence of their their demon lord master one of the primary jobs of the melidius is to guard the demon lord's amulets remember we talked briefly about um, the amulets that make it so that you can respawn somewhere in the abyss so if you can find a melidius chances are good it knows where one of these amulets are for even a demon lord they're innate spellcasters. They have legendary resistance, magical resistance, legendary actions, powerful spells, two kinds of bite attacks because they got two heads. The serpent bite does damage to max hit points and uh, if a creature falls to zero hit points, um, uh, zero maximum hit points as a result of the serpent bite, it immediately turns into a mains and will attack on behalf of the, uh, of the demon lord. So this is another one of those cases of a death spiral happening. If you manage to wipe out the bard, that bard isn't dead long because you can't resurrect it. It stands up as a mains and it's coming for you. The other thing about it, which I absolutely love, I said that that all of the, um, all of the demon lord weapons kind of have the same basic mechanic and it's this. If you crit with it, it has a condition. If the DM rolls a d20 and gets a 20 on that roll, that person, that its target, is decapitated immediately and fucking dies. Hard stop. I can say that again, if this thing hits you, you die on a crit. That's it. This is one of the only creatures that has an actual crit mechanic. So these things are smart, they're powerful, they're magical. And they are just brutal and ruthless. And uh, frankly, I don't even know how it, how I would add this into a campaign. This is, at the very end, beyond everything else, when the campaign is over and, one of, and you decide to do one last big uh, adventure um, at level 20 and you decide to go up against one of these things, really only half the party or fewer are going to walk away from this because it has two different instant deaths mechanics. Now, that takes us all the way from CR 18 up to CR 21. There was a lot to unpack there, but we're not done yet. Let's look for a moment to orcs. Now, we did an orc episode not long ago, and I talked very briefly about the Tanaruk. The Tanaruk is a very special kind of demon um, that is only spawned under certain um, certain scenarios orcs they may turn to abyssal magic um if demonic corruption can worm its way into a tr- an orc tribe so they'll turn to specifically baphomet which is the minotaur-like demon lord and they'll look to him for power and he will grant that power in whatever way that he sees fit but his payment is that an unborn orc fetus somewhere in the tribe will be turned into a tanneruk and when it's born it will create abject chaos. These things are vicious, and they will try to take control of the tribe. They're far more powerful than the average orc because they're CR5. Um, and uh, so they're usually imprisoned early in their lives to stop the Tanneric from leading the tribe into chaotic war for the sake of chaotic war. If it breeds, if it has the opportunity to continue to breed, subsequent generations have a high chance of producing more tannerics. So these abominations are often just killed upon birth. They're, they look like large orcs with giant minotaur horns, which, I mean, if you think about the uh, Baphomet who's giving the power that, that tracks, um, they've got barbs all over their bodies, and they've got large fangs. They're very fast in battle, um, and they have a powerful melee retaliation. So if you hit them as a reaction, they can hit you right freaking back. You can find these guys not under the demon section in uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters, but in the orc section, which is why I've separated them out. And, uh, and I wanted to talk about them. They're, they're a little bit different. They, they only appear under certain circumstances and they're not part of the basic hierarchy. And if you thought that orcs had a neat, fun thing, let's talk about gnolls. Now gnolls are directly related to Yianagu, um, who is the, uh, He is the demon uh, lord of hunger, and he is about as chaotic as they come. He just looks like a giant freaking demonic gnoll. Um, So like a hyena person, for those of you who don't know. (laughs) He also grants um, two additional demons to join gnoll warbands that are running around. The first one is the maw demon. This is a CR1. These things, you can find them in and among Knoll War warbands, um, and they're relatively weak, but they embody Yanagu's pure hunger. They've got three arms, three legs, and three eyes. They've got a giant mouth that vertically splits their bodies in two, all the way through their torso, with giant teeth that are gnashing throughout this cavern. So this thing is mostly mouth with eyes and arms and legs sprouting out in strange places. They share Yinagu's desperate hunger, and after a long rest, anything that they've eaten automatically transports directly into Yinagu's stomach for consumption. Which means the ma Demons are always hungry. The ma Demons travel with the Knoll Warbands, and they will follow the Knoll's lead, um but uh they will also rampage if they reduce a creature to zero hit points which means that if they reduce a creature um to unconsciousness they will then turn around and as a as a reaction almost they will just get to move their speed up to to the next creature so these things are chaotic and they're they're moving around the battlefield pretty quickly dropping a couple of these into a group of npcs that the players are trying to protect at low levels would really create a whole lot of chaos. Which is a lot of fun. Um, the other one is the Shusuva. This is a CR8, so it's a little bit different. Whereas the Mod Demon was a medium creature that well, was a little bit warped, we're talking now about a hyena demon that's large sized and it's not bipedal, it's down on all four legs. Um, and it manifests as a gift from Yiannagu after the warband has achieved some great victory in some battle it then binds itself to a powerful knoll that then becomes its master. And these knolls are second only to flints in knoll society. So a great knoll warrior that has killed uh, quite a few enemies and has uh, changed the tide of battle um, during, a, during a skirmish or a fight, or maybe it just slaughtered the most innocents in a small fishing village. Whatever it is, they may be gifted a Shusuva. And while the knoll itself doesn't get any increased stats... It gets a place of, of revenance within the the Null Society itself. Um, the Shusuva rampages if it reduces a creature to zero, much like the Ma Demon does, and it actually has a tail attack that causes both poison and paralysis. So you can imagine that there are creatures out there that are being paralyzed by the Shusuva and then attacked. Um, as a whole bunch of mod demons come running up and gnolls come running through. It, I mean, the Witherlings and the Flins... And I mean, can you imagine a gnoll warband in its, in its full fury with the with the abyssal ties that it has as well? This is one of the most intimidating um, kind of monsters out there. And to have the, the backing of a demon lord who actually doesn't ask for anything in return... Just gifts these extra demons to to kind of flesh out what the warband can do. This gnolls are by far my favorite mob. I absolutely love them, and I think that people need to use them more often. Uh, that kind of rounds out the regular ones, but let's talk really quickly before we wrap this up about uh, the guildmaster's guide to Ravnica. So I mentioned briefly about Radcos. This is a whole other subject. Um, for another episode, but Radkos is a um, demon Lord who has a a carnival. um, And that's kind of his whole shtick is that he corrupts people by, by putting on these horrible, um, indulgent, violent, murderous acts where people can go watch uh, other mortals get tortured and murdered. And they end up um, becoming, uh, they, they drop into a fervor. That, that keeps them uh, inspired by the bloodlust. So let's get into it really quickly. There are three demons in particular in the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica that you may not know about, and I hope more people use these because they're freaking crazy. The first one at CR half is a cackler. This is a little red creature, and it looks kind of like a devil. It's got little black mottled spots around it, but it looks generally like, like a little imp without the wings. Um... These members of the cult of, of Radkos, um, they perform a twisted, uh, in, in the twisted carnival that uh, that leave the audience drenched in blood, and uh, and that leaves the audience in a sense of ecstasy. The cacklers are jesters who inspire mad laughter in nearby creatures, and they're also experts in mimicry. So they will go out and there'll be these clowns that will get people all worked up, and then go on such a murder spree that. Uh, the audience can't help but laugh and can't help but feel ecstatic as they are being drenched in gore and viscera and blood, like the first three rows at freaking SeaWorld. The Cacklers have a spiked chain and a bite. They can cast Firebolt at will, and they can use uh, Tasha's Hideous Laughter once a day, which, you know, tracks. They can mimic any sound they've heard, including voices. This might be a little bit of, of fun to... Throw a, a low-level party off the uh, off the trail of maybe a more powerful demon that's uh, trying to escape. When they die, however, the cackler has a really neat mechanic that lets them uh, kind of get a death rattle. They they have a cackle, which causes potential psychic damage to nearby creatures. You have to save, and if you can't, you take psychic damage as this thing dies. This this laugh kind of haunts your soul and works into your mind psychically. I really like any kind of creature that has a, an effect where when it dies, um, we saw this with the Orthons and the Devils and, uh, and with the Baylor Demon. When it dies, there's, there's a consequence for the death as well. Uh, that just It's a lot of fun. And the fact that you're getting a small, um, like a CR half creature doing this, it makes it even better. The next one is simply called the Master of Cruelties. And I'm assuming there's more than one. Um, even though it's called the Master of Cruelties. These are large creatures. It's CR 9. So it's quite a jump here. These are the ringleaders of the Cult of Radkos. They draw the audience into their depravity and their torturous ways, imbuing the audience with the fervor and a bloodlust to the point of wanting to partake in the murder and destruction. It's not enough to just entertain. They are inspiring abject Chaos. They're large, they've got faces like skulls, and with like four twisting horns, and they have an aura of bloodlust that encourages creatures creatures to attack random nearby creatures. They have powerful, mind-altering spells, they regain hit points when nearby creatures die, and they captivate creatures within 120 feet, charming them with an action that actually recharges. So this thing at CR9 can walk in to a like a tavern and just c- cause everyone around to go insane and and be ecstatic as they're murdering each other. And it actually beefs up this the Master of Cruelties as it happens. You can picture a, a demon invasion force walking into a small town and the and the players are trying to Defend the general store, and in the distance, they see the Master of Cruelties just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, as as the town folk are killing each other in the streets. The last one, this is kind of a, got a neat flavor to it too, is called the Sire of Insanities, CR12, huge creature. This is a bloated, bipedal lizard demon with great horns it works in the shadows underground beneath the Radko's nightclubs. I love that little piece of uh, of flavor there, that lore. Radko's has nightclubs in Ravnica. Uh, So it's not just a carnival. It's not just a circus. It's like we're going to go to the Radko's nightclubs. And and there's all sorts of violence and depravities that are being committed um, on the different levels of the of the nightclubs, and the Sire of Insanities feasts on these while it lurks in the basement. The cult actually will bring um, cult initiates into uh, the Sire of Insanities lair, where it snaps their minds and drives them insane. This is all about insanity here. I feel like Radkos may like the Sire of Insanities, but I would definitely maybe have demon uh, Demogorgon uh, come in and have a uh, have a couple of Sire of Insanities walking around as well. Sires of Insanities? That's a little strange. Uh, anyways, the, they also have uh, the Aura of Mind Erosion that gives disadvantage on Wisdom and Charisma saves. And they have great Illusion and Enchantment magics, as well as a powerful melee attack. So, we've seen a whole lot of different kinds of demons here. We've seen shadow Demons, which are undead. The uh, um, <clears throat> the Dibbix which can possess people. We've got all sorts of, of vulture demons and and fly hybrids. We've got the uh, unique Ravnica demons, the gnoll demons. There's even an orc demon. The Sibriax, which has all of this crazy um, uh, powers, and it, it spawns Rutterkins, which spawn Abyssal Wretches. We've got the Melidius, which is even more powerful than a balor in a lot of ways. Uh, and we've got the Navasu who are uh, who will even eat other demon souls and are kind of kicked out of regular demon society and the hierarchy. We've got things that uh, the the uh, ghouls, the maraji um, uh, or the um the Armonites who are centaur demons. There's a, a whole bunch of fun stuff for Loth to do as well. You can see they're so, many options when it comes to demons, far more than with devils. And it's a lot of fun to go through and figure out how these pieces can fit together for different kinds of, um, of encounters that you may want to put your party through. And even four or five different low-level creatures may be able to challenge a Tier 3 or even a Tier 4 party. So demons have a lot of options, and because there's a hierarchy, there's a lot of uh, fun with them as well. I recommend that everybody takes the time to look into these. The books that I've referenced are the monster manual, Mordenkund's Tome of foes, Volo's guide to monsters and, uh, the Guildmaster's guide to Ravnica. So I hope that this kind of gives you an idea of, uh, of what you can look forward to with the chaotic evil side of the lower planes. Next episode, I'm going to move on to Yugoloths and, uh, and kind of their role in the blood war, because they, they've got something unique going on as well. So there are more demons than anything else. I expect the next episode will be relatively short comparatively. I can't believe I've gone like a freaking hour and a half. Dan is just sleeping through absolutely anything. I'm uh, I'm going to go raid his fridge um, and uh, steal all of his beer. So uh, I'm probably also going to leave another note from Terry, and hopefully I can have the two of them just fighting each other during the entire Fiend episode, because I am really looking forward to having our own blood war. And then maybe I'll get to choose a side like a Yugoloth does. Anyways, I'll catch you tomorrow with episode three.